everybody. Happy Saturday. Coming up soon on the show, we have an episode that makes a couple of references to Harvard Indian College. Back on June 24th of 2015, we put out an episode that is also connected to that topic. It's an interview with archaeologists from the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard. And the museum exhibit that's discussed in this interview, which is called Digging Veritas, that is still available online at the museum's website. And we have a couple of pronunciation notes on this one. Uh, Listeners may notice that this episode uses the pronunciation Wampanoag, but in more recent episodes, we've said Wampanoag. Both of those pronunciations are in use by people who refer to themselves by one or the other. And as for the other one, listeners may also notice that Holly says Peabody in this episode, while the interviewees say Peabody. George Peabody, who's the museum's namesake, pronounced it Peabody, although there are a lot of institutions named for him that use that pronunciation and others that don't. Most Massachusetts area people talk about things like the Peabody Museum at Harvard or the Peabody Essex Museum. But for example, I have never heard anyone from Peabody College at Vanderbilt say it that way. And I'm indoctrinated by uh, Mr. Peabody from uh, the cartoons. (laughs) Yes, most people would look at that spelling and think that it's Peabody. Yeah. So uh, enjoy this episode and all of these inconsistencies in pronunciation. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, we certainly reference archaeology all the time on the show, and we talk about artifacts that have been unearthed and sometimes discoveries that help explain our understandings of other times and cultures, but we don't often get to actually speak with the archaeologists involved. Just always, you know, we love hearing. We have fans that are archaeologists that write to us sometimes, but it's cool to actually get to sit down and have a conversation with archaeologists. And I was recently lucky enough to do just that. Uh, I had a talk with two fabulous women who are archaeologists at Harvard University, and they're working on this really interesting ongoing project with Harvard's Peabody Museum of Ethnology and Archaeology. So this is another one of our recent collection of episodes. You can tell it's summertime because Holly and I have each had various time off. (laughs) So uh, this is another one of those uh, episodes that, Holly, you took uh, you took the reins on this one while I was away, and so I am getting to experience it for the first time along with all of our listeners. I love it when it works out that way. It is. It's kind of fun to see. Uh, I know for me, when you do a project on your own, it's fun to kind of see how that plays out, and it's kind of like getting a little treat in addition to getting time off. So, uh, so, <laughs> so tell us about who you talked to. So in this uh, first segment, I will introduce you to these fabulous women who are Patricia Capone and Diana Lauren, and they're going to share their stories on how they ended up at Harvard and how they ended up working on this dig that's actually exploring Harvard's colonial past. Uh, We're also going to talk about Harvard's Indian College and how that was established. Uh, And as well, we're going to discuss colonialism in the context of the school. Alrighty, so today I have a super fun treat. We are going to be talking to two curators from the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University. And so for our listeners who love archaeology stories and or uh, Native American history, this one is really going to be a delight, like a 
piece of delicious dessert cake, except in knowledge form. Uh, so I have Patricia Capone, who goes by Trish, and she's the Director of Repatriation and Research Services, and Diana Lauren, uh, who is Director of Academic Partnerships, uh, and they both work as curators of an exhibit there at the Peabody Museum uh, called Digging Veritas. And most of our listeners probably know Harvard University is the oldest higher education institution in the U.S. It was founded in 1636, so in many ways, it's kind of like a living time capsule of America's development. And these two women have been part of a really fascinating project that combines archaeological education with historical education and Harvard's own past. So ladies, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. We're psyched to be here. Yay! So now each well, each of you um, and whoever wishes to go first may do so. Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do as a curator and if you want to include it, how you landed there. This is Trish um, and I began excavating in Harvard Yard as a graduate student um, here at the university and I uh, was under the wing of the um, graduate student who was working on the project for his thesis, John Stubbs. Um, I grew up in the Boston area and was um, in part interested in this particular story because of that, but also because I'm interested in colonial America and cultural dynamics of um, that period in general. All right, Diana, it's your turn. Okay. Well, I came to Harvard in 1999 after I finished my degree in archaeology at SUNY Binghamton. And while I wasn't a archaeologist as an undergrad, it's something I studied in graduate school and focused on colonial America. So it was after I had been here a while, knowing that the university had previously done digs, including the one Trish was involved with, in Harvard Yard, I began to get interested. And it was in this moment in 2005 where Trish and I had the opportunity to start the project and dig in the yard and learn about the material and intellectual history of the university. Uh, and I have to ask this question. It may be weird. I think when a lot of people think of archaeology, they think of, you know, really ancient kind of excavation stuff. What drew you instead to colonial history? Well, I grew up in Philadelphia. And um, not to age myself, but was around in um, 1976 Bicentennial Celebrations, which was huge in Philadelphia. And from that point on, just an interest in colonial history and the history of North America emerged out of those interests. Yeah, and um, for me, I uh, had been mainly working previously as a graduate student in the Southwest U.S., um, especially in New Mexico and in colonial mission contexts there, um, which uh, were in many ways a contrast to the kind of archaeology taking place in New England, but also some um, really intriguing similarities. Uh, uh, some differences included the uh, missionization versus economic colonization, um, and uh, a number of other things that I was interested in, in kind of exploring as as uh, comparisons and contrasts. Cool. And I would say, like Trish, I also worked in, for my dissertation, in colonial contexts that weren't English. They were Spanish and French. But then, you know, coming here and being here and learning about the work that's been done at Harvard, the history of Harvard, 
you know, trying to understand colonial past through all these different colonies and different people intersecting in the 17th and 18th century is just truly fascinating. Well, uh, going off of that, will you guys give us a little bit of background on Harvard's Indian College? Because we're going to talk about it a lot. And I know I was surprised to learn it really didn't have all that many students. I think when you say the word college, you think of a crowd of people, and that is not the case. Correct. There were five students known to have um, been connected to the Indian College, and actually um, four of them are known to have resided there. Uh, one of them was a little bit later in the 18th century. But um, yeah, it um, started as part of the Charter of 1650, which committed um, Harvard College uh, in part to the education of the English and Indian youth of this country in knowledge and godliness. I'm quoting from the 1650 charter there. And that had been the result of a um, collaboration from the English Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in New England. They granted funds for Indian education at Harvard, um, which came at a uh, crucial time for the college, which was uh, beginning to struggle financially and uh, later resulted in the building of the brick um, Indian College building itself, um, which was the second educational structure built as an educational structure at Harvard College. Um, anything else to add there, Diana? Well, I would say um, I think that the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in New England, that they had kept the university or the college afloat at that time because, you know, the college is established 1636. Shortly after that, they're going bankrupt and they need money to continue going. And so since they're struggling financially, they look to the society for funds and the society says, that's fine, you can keep going, but you need to dedicate the institution not only to English students, but also Native American students yeah. to learn to become Puritan ministers. Yeah, and this, this, I mean, this was in line with what the, the 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 previous focus of Harvard College was to train um, young men in Puritan ministry, um, but expanding it to uh, become uh, an overtly, you know, proselytization uh, mechanism was was a new direction. And so I have to wonder what, uh, since we kind of know at that point the goals for the Indian College, I have to wonder what the goals for the the young men who attended were. Were they pretty much signed on, or was this an option that just seemed like, you know, they were either stuck kind of into this idea, or were they really enthusiastic about being part of this project? I mean, that kind of information is somewhat lost in the archive. Gotcha. Um, you know, we talk about colonialism and colonialist context as these very complex landscapes of colonialism happening and different communities seeking to recover or continue traditions or become something new. Wouldn't you say, Trish? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I would say that the details of their personal stories are not very well known at this point. Right. And There's no it's arc. unclear whether the um, pr 
primary sources out there yet to be discovered will help inform on those personal details. Um, the bits of personal detail that we do know is that um, the um, at least a couple of the individuals, Caleb Chishatamuk in particular, um, were uh, the sons of leaders. And so the notion that um, the leaders of the neighboring indigenous people were uh, coming to join this enterprise, you know, was, uh, I think, a, a weighty notion and um, suggested that it was in some way a positive, perhaps, honor. We're not, you know, we can't really necessarily project that, but um, and we don't know whether uh, what the individuals themselves felt, but the fact that the sons of prominent individuals were um, were the the ones uh, Indian college students, I think, is a significant pattern. Um, they would have been studying for many years prior to coming to the college in preparatory schools. Just to enter, they would have had um, to be fluent in a number of scholarly. Uh, languages, including ancient Greek and Latin, Hebrew. So um, in addition to, you know, English not being a first language, this was uh, a, you know, pretty major educational background that they already arrived with. And so the project um, that resulted in the Digging Veritas exhibit, I really love this because it actually started as a class that students could take. Uh, could you? And it continues as a class. Well, can you tell us a little bit about that class and kind of how that piece of curriculum came to be and how it continues? Sure. So in 2005, the the museum received a call from Massachusetts Hall, which is the place of where the president resides on campus, and it's the oldest standing structure. At that time, in 2005, they were going to be doing some construction around the building. And they had received guidance from the local historic commission saying, you know, you should get some archaeologists to check around the building before you do construction to make sure you don't impact any cultural resources. And then that same year in 2005, and I don't know, Trish, if you want to take over at this point. Yeah, sure. It was um, simultaneous with Mm -hmm. the commemoration of the 350th anniversary of the Harvard Indian College. And, um, uh, you know, having some understanding of previous excavations in Harvard Yard, we we knew that the location of the Indian College, the physical location of the Indian College was still not known. And, um, and so we got to talking with some of the interested um, scholarly interests uh, community stakeholders and so forth. The Harvard University Native American program played a, a major role in the commemoration of the Indian College and and um, came to conceive of this potential public archaeology project that um, would take the form of a Harvard class, as as had been um, Harvard classes had previously excavated in Harvard Yard in the 1980s with. John Stubbs, um, uh, but having this this one have the the additional facet of a uh, a focus on community archaeology and um, 
neighboring uh, Native American groups' interests in the topic, as well as the on-campus um, Native American community and scholarly interests in this. Uh, to this point, um, understudied topic. So in 2005, it was really this perfect moment for us to go forward and get the support to dig in the yard and to teach it as a class so that students could be invested in investigating this history as well as contributing to the history. Yeah, and and the muse- the Peabody Museum was also at, the, at that time exploring ways um, to involve students in hands-on learning uh, settings and um, learning through material culture, museum uh, processes, and um, the types of research that result in museum collections themselves. So for students to have the opportunity to, um, you know, kind of start to finish, engage in a research project, and then uh, take part in the interpretation of the products of that research um, and and then archiving them for posterity as part of the uh, museum collection uh, was em- embraced, supported as a, a good thing to experiment with. It's such a wonderful idea, although it does make me wonder, how on earth do you manage a dig site that is also part of a busy and thriving campus? Oh, mm-hmm. it is the busiest part of the campus. <laughs> it definitely is. So we have so much support from the university and the museum to do the work. We have the support of yard operations who manage the day-to-day flow of activities in the yard, as well as the landscaping crew, archives, etc. Just a lot of people coming together to support the project so we can dig in this very public space and do the work with the students there. You know, having the project take place in that public space is an opportunity for us to talk about the public, about the history of the university, the importance of the Indian college, and the story about Indian education at Harvard. And that's not a story that most people know about. Yeah, and and I'd also like to credit the students' openness to mm-hmm. um, engaging in communicating the relevance of um, not only this particular topic of the Indian College and Harvard history, but um, the importance of of archaeology and cultural resources under our feet, um, uh, broadly conceived, is is just amazing. And and their willingness to um, uh, really think of it as a form of civic engagement and um, and you know, be there with the public and and help guide the public's experience as they're uh, coming through the yard. You know, either um, uh, either as 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 tourists or uh, you know, just walking on their way to um, fellow students on their way to class or or um, other community members. It's the students have really played such a key and uh, an excellent role in the um, public archaeology aspect. I just want to add to that by saying they're so enthusiastic with engaging with the public about the project and the story that it just makes it a fantastic project all around. So... 
Uh, Now that we know how this amazing class at Harvard is helping to unearth some of the school's history and how it's creating this ongoing museum collection, uh, Tracy, do you want to pause for just a moment for a word from one of our sponsors? Yeah, let's do that. Getting back to my chat with Trish and Diana, uh, the ladies are next going to talk about some pretty significant finds that have been made by students participating in this dig at Harvard Yard. And then we're going to talk a little bit about why there's so little information about the building that housed the Indian College. Because while it's part of Harvard's history, there's a lot of gaps in the knowledge there. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about everyone's favorite topic, which is food, and some of the more rebellious pursuits of the college's students. So then in 2009, uh, this project uncovered a rather important trench. Um, Can you tell us sort of about that trench and its significance and and what you found in it? Yeah. So in 2009, we had, well, in previous years, I should say, we were excavating in the area in front of Matthews Hall at the college and looking for information on the Indian College. And in 2007, we had excavated a unit, archaeological unit, where we came across some dark soil and 17th century printing type. It was in 2009 that we were able to expand on that area, and we came across this dark feature in the soil, which represented the eastern wall of the Indian College building. Yeah, we have some images and that you had mm-hmm. mentioned, Holly, the Digging Veritas um, online exhibit and physical exhibit in the museum itself. And we have some great images of what that feature looked like as well as some um, detail uh, photos of the artifacts that came from the trench and that um, that situated it in time um, with, at, at the time of the Indian College, the printing type. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the uh, slipware ceramics that um, are, you know, solidly uh, 17th century types. So we were pretty excited when all the a- all the aspects of this feature came together to, su- to to suggest it relating to the architecture of the Indian College. And those two pieces of printing type, um, if I did my research, read my research correctly, <laughs> those are believed to be part of the first printing press in the colonies. Is that correct? Yes. So this is the little object that speaks volumes, as Trish would put it. Um, small pieces of lead alloy printing type that were used in a movable press, which was the first press in the British colonies. It was here at Harvard. It was located in the Indian College building, and it was used to produce text in both the local Algonquin language and English. Yeah, the first books printed in America Mm -hmm. uh, were printed on that press. So that's hugely significant. I mean, that's like a big find, even though, as you said, it's a tiny thing, but it's really huge. We agree. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the really, really cool aspects of this whole project to me is that you collaborate uh, with the Wampanoag and Nipmuc nations and I think probably other um, Native American nations. What is their involvement in this and how did that partnership develop? Sure. This is this is Trish. Um, At the time that um, the 
350th anniversary of the Indian College was being commemorated, um, there were already strands of outreach and intellectual uh, networks uh, relating some of the questions um, of the Indian College uh, to uh, current scholarly work coming out of um, Native American groups in New England. Um, and so we uh, largely followed on those cues that were um, already uh, in process of, of unfolding. Um, we also were uh, enthusiastic to identify some common research goals that um, might have some uh, potential student involvement um, in addition to the scholarly um, implications as well as uh, some public interest. So um, for the museum, it, it was, uh, you know, the coming together of a number of different factors and, and interests and, and people um, in a, in a uh, positive and, um, and I think, uh, you know, growing out of um, intellectual trends in different fields, um, which the Native American tribes were on their own taking part in. Uh, and so I think our contacts with, uh, for example, direct descendants of um, Nipmuc tribal members who um, uh, descended from James the printer, um, the one of the individuals who um, is known to have uh, printed on the printing press, um, and uh, then uh, tribal members uh, from the Wampanoag tribes, particularly um, Gay Head Aquino. We were fortunate to work with a Harvard student from that community, that Wampanoag community, who took the um, Archaeology of Harvard Yard class with us, um, and that was right around the same time as the 350th um, anniversary of uh, what would have been their graduations mm -hmm. from the Indian College. So um, just, uh, I think, a, a lot of uh, common interests coming together at the same time and, and continuing to develop, and, and I think not the least of which is the um, uh, Wampanoag language reclamation project work uh, being done utilizing some of the books that were um, printed at the Indian College, in particular the Indian Bible, um, a lot of that work has been recognized as key in um, in revitalizing the Wamp Wampanoag language, which had gone um, unspoken for many years and is is being revitalized through the efforts of um, tribal members uh, today and has been going on for, for some time. But all of these different threads, I think, um, uh, come together and, and have relevance for each other and and uh, hopefully can continue to grow the development of knowledge on this topic. Can I add, Trish? Um, we operationalized engagement, the public archaeology of the project um, through an open well, an open mm. house in the spring semester. Mm -hmm. So in the fall semester, when we start excavations, we have an opening day where we invite different members of the community, local community, um, to come and talk about the project and help the students situate their experience within this larger history. And then in the spring, we have an open house where students, 
we and the students invite members of the community here on campus and the local tribal community to come and view what we've located in the excavations and then have a conversation about what we've found to date and where the project is going next. So mm -hmm. we're really fortunate to be able to have a dialogue with different stakeholders about the project itself. Mm -hmm. Which and continues one, to help it grow. Yeah, and one facet that I'd just add more overtly than I did previously was the um, scholarly interest among the um, Harvard University Native American campus community um, and their interest in Native education, the history of Native education, uh, you know, some of the uh, positive as well as negative aspects of that, some critique of Native education, and then also interest in literacy um, and how uh, that's an important aspect of uh, colonial, the colonial enterprise. So now I'm going to shift gears on you a little bit and talk a little bit more about architecture, because my understanding is that you did not really have any um, contemporary images that were made when the the Indian College was actually standing and that there was one representation that was put together based on archival documents. But has this um, trench and sort of this excavation led to any new insights about the actual building itself? Absolutely. You know, we have descriptions in the archival record which say we propose to, and I think I'm quoting here, um, build a small pile of brick for the Indians and the actual dimensions that it was supposed to be. That it was a two-story building with room for 20 students that was supposed to be about 20 by 70 feet. But the details of that are not in the archives, and there are no drawings from the 17th century that indicate what the building looked like. So in the archaeological excavation, we're able to see, yes, it was a brick building. And the kinds of bricks that were used, there were some specially made bricks that came out of the excavation, which showed us how um, important the structure was on, on that small campus at the time. So Harvard in the 17th century is just four buildings. Two, um, three of which are, are wood frame, and then the first brick building is the Indian College building. Mm -hmm. And I think the the um, stoutness of the foundation and the the this this season in particular, the extent of clay underpinnings um, show it to be kind of a contrast in degree of permanency to the previous building, the 1638 Old College, um, didn't really leave a, a foundation trace. The, um, the cellar hole, a small cellar hole of the Old College um, has been excavated, but in terms of building footings, uh, there, there certainly aren't any that have been discovered that are to the extent of the trench that we found relating to the Indian College. And the um, the the kind of lack of of uh, good foundation for the old college may have contributed. John Stubbs has suggested may have contributed to um, its quick uh, track to disrepair. Um, and so the the investment in underpinnings for the Indian College are are a contrast. 
So in terms of architecture, um, the brick uh, structure is confirmed as well as I think the investment in its um, permanence, which is kind of a surprise because it was taken down not too long um, after and um, we talk a little bit about that in the in the exhibits. Right. I think we were really, both of us have worked on colonial sites and both of us were just so impressed with the level of effort that was put into constructing this building it, to be completed by 1655. You know, Harvard landscape in the 17th century, kind of a marshy area to construct buildings. And the efforts put forward with the clay and the size of the trench to stabilize the structure so that it would be long-standing, as Trish said, is so significant and really adds to our understanding of the investment that was being made with the construction of this building. So shifting a little bit now that you have brought, you know, you've mentioned uh, the colonial era again, um, which we've been talking about, I know, the whole time, but... Uh, I know that in the online exhibit, you talk a little bit about kind of social hierarchy and class structure and how that played out at the school. Has uh, What elements of this archaeology project have kind of lent to your understanding of how all of that worked? I think there's a couple great examples that come out, both in the ceramic material that's been recovered and also the faunal material that's been recovered. Wouldn't you say, Trish? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Go for it. So with the ceramic material, you know, in the 17th century, as we imagine um, what daily life was like, we know that the students led a really structured lives, both the English students and the Native American students. You know, their days were planned out for them from about 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. And when you think about their life and their world, you know, what we find in the archaeological record is their trash, right? So the broken pottery, the animal bones, that was part of their daily life and how they ate at the table and their diet. And the ceramics show from the 17th century show, you know, fairly modest beginning, right? And so Mm -hmm. nothing really fancy. And when you look at the faunal material, the animal bones that are left over from meals, you see something similar as well, Mm -hmm. that it's just a very modest beginning. There's indications that there was a great deal of status differentiation at the table, you know, those seated above the salt and those who are not. And so we have an indication more about those students that were seated below the salt, you know, with their plain ceramics where they carved their initials into the bottom of their redware tankard and just the small few things they had with them as students in the college. Um, One of the I think the surprises is some of the local, at, at least uh, oh, right. that from um, the point of view of um, students, is some of the local products that um, are evident in the archaeological record, particularly relating to dining, the abundance of oyster shells, which also would have been used in um, the manufacture of mortar for the brick building, but um, the it 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 seems pretty clear that oysters were also um, used as a food source and a number of other local, you know, as Diana mentioned, um, that it was a, a, a pretty modest beginning, the, um, the emphasis on um, some of those local products 
uh, highlight that, I think, for the students in, in contrast to our dining situation today. <laughs> you know, we talk about with the students the yummy bivalve diet. <laughs> They're eating <laughs> yummy bivalves. <laughs> but at that time, it's not considered a fancy diet. Rather, they're eating this local grub on plain dishes. <laughs> um, one other thing I wanted to talk about, and I know this is also part of the exhibit, is sort of the um, the rules and the structure of Harvard in the 1650s and 1660s, which, mm. you know, were based in religion and they sound very strict and there's no smoking and there were clothing guidelines. But the archaeological record gives us some evidence that those guidelines were maybe not always followed. <laughs> um, will you elaborate on that? Sure. No big surprise there that students are... Um, just as invested in their extracurricular pursuits as they are today <laughs> with um, just a lot of evidence of pipe smoking, um, using tobacco, as well as drinking through the evidence of wine bottles and other liquor bottles. You know, the, the laws of the college are based on the laws of the Bay Colony, which also advocate a modest lifestyle without any excess. And, um, you know, smoking and drinking are considered excess. And so students are definitely imbibing and enjoying themselves mm-hmm. in ways that went against the laws of both the university or the college at the time and the Bay Colony. Mm-hmm. Do you want to mention some of the uh, health Oh, evidence is, of health and, and stress management. Oh, my gosh. You know, this is one of my, fa- as Trish knows, this is one of my favorite topics, is the level of bodily care and comfort in the 17th century. It's another thing we talked to students about. Your day-to-day life in the 17th century, how you consider bodily health today is not how you considered bodily health in the 17th century you know, we find, and what we find in the archaeological record is, you know, some evidence of how the students were trying to care for themselves with um, tiny bone combs with uh, really close teeth that were used to pick the lice out of hair. So that lice was a concern at the university. And then also the medicine bottles that we recover. The students were compounding medicines to alleviate illnesses as part of their daily life. And some of the early accounts are recipes of the different medicines that could be used to alleviate dysentery and diarrhea and all the things that make you uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And there was an excavation in the 80s where they came up with some botanical remains, and those botanical remains also were evidence of the medicinals that are used or at the time considered simples um, to alleviate bodily concern. <laughs> I love how, how delicately and carefully you put that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, these students, that you know, they're not comfortable. I mean, as we think about comfort, bodily comfort now, they have teeth issues, they have lice, they have um, problems with digestion. You know, all of that is part of their daily life and how they try to alleviate that through the use of material culture is something that also resides as part of the story as well that we recover from the archaeological record.
so now that we are are jumping back in um, to our last segment, our wonderful guests are going to share with us some of their favorite finds from the Harvard excavation. And you will get a very real sense here of how much they love the work they do and how exciting it is for them to be part of this really unique student-oriented archaeology project. So for each of you, I would love to hear what the most exciting um, or favorite find in the archaeological work there at Harvard is. Since Diana mentioned a little bit. Sure. (laughs) I'm kidding. I have one overall and one from this season. I don't know Mm. about you, Trish. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So in 2009, when we're excavating at that area where we believe it to be the trench, two, two students looked up from the excavations and said, we think we found something. And they held it up and it was a piece of the printing type. And I just mm-hmm. burst into tears. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was such a moment. Yeah. This, this season, we had students excavating in this level that was 17th and 18th century material. And he said, oh, you know, I think we found something interesting. And he held up this pair of cufflinks, sleeve mm-hmm. buttons. And I said, there is no way you found that on this site. <laughs> they were so nice and mm-hmm. so beautiful and so well-preserved. And like... Yeah, we totally did. I was like, uh-uh, did you bring them from somewhere? But no, sure enough, they came out of the excavation. And that kind of excitement never goes away, even after years of doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that um, one of the artifact types that is a particularly effective time machine and kind of context awareness razor for students is um, when they start finding the colonial clay tobacco pipes and uh, they find them with, with some frequency. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's enough to kind of, it's a real eye opener that we're, you know, we're dealing with a different, a different time, same place, but a very different time. Um, In terms of my own uh, excavation in Harvard Yard, finding an, an entire, fish skeleton in the cellar of the old college building, uh, 17th century fish skeleton was pretty exciting too. So what would either of you say, and you can each give your own answer, uh, is the most important thing that you would like people to know about this ongoing archaeology project at Harvard? Well, I think the the broad message that um, cultural resources, um, archaeology, uh, even of recent historic periods, is all around us, and to raise awareness for the preservation and and support for those resources is um, is a biggie. Uh, and then, in addition to that, I think the the more specific message of our shared colonial past in New England um, that interweaves uh, a place like Harvard College with um, Native American families and communities in the region. Diana? Yeah. So I would say, you know, the story of 17th century Harvard, again, speaks to that shared past, but is also such an important message for students in the future that they understand the university history and that they have a part in creating the narrative for the present. And that narrative includes telling the story of the Indian College and the importance of Indian education at early Harvard. And that's a story that's been forgotten. 1698, 
the Indian College was dismantled. The bricks were used for another building. If you look at the landscape today, that story is absent. So having students being able to tell that story is so important to the continuation of the project. So can you share any plans uh, or exciting things going on with upcoming aspects of the dig? Mm -hmm. So um, we have students working on updates to the online exhibit as we speak. So that's very exciting. So changing a little bit about the public face of the project online. And um, then thinking we're also cataloging finds from this past, the past falls excavation. What else, Trish? Um, yeah, the on the the updates to the online exhibit. I think that's that's a biggie, and the fact that um, we aim to be offering the course again mm. in offering it in 2016-17. We're in the fall. We'll excavate in the yard, and the spring we'll go into the lab, catalog the material, and then help with the accessioning process so that it becomes part of the museum's collection. So cool. Uh, and you guys both mentioned the online site. So where could listeners go if they want to learn more about this? So um, to the uh, the main website of the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology. And then um, there's a link to exhibitions and a sublink to online exhibitions. And it's under there uh, titled Digging Veritas. And it really is quite a treat. There are a lot of really fun images to look at. Uh, oh, so glad you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, yes. And, and watch this space. More changes to come. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yep. So it will continue to develop, which means it's good to go back to periodically so I can see new stuff. Um, so, And we will include the main link uh, in our show notes oh, as well. Uh, but otherwise, ladies, thank you so much. This has been such a delight. Thank you so much for joining us today for this Saturday Classic. If you have heard any kind of email address or maybe a Facebook URL during the course of the episode, that might be obsolete. It might be doubly obsolete because we have changed our email address again. You can now reach us at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 